Oh, it's your favorite time of the week. All your work is done, and it's time to relax. So come, grab some friends, and let's get lit and join the rotation. You are now in the rotation with Suncoast Normal. We are your host, your Suncoast Normal Executive Board, and we say it's time to legalize it. Isn't it crazy you have to get back to work after Labor Day and not before? Doesn't make any sense to me, but what the heck? I worked on Labor Day. (laughs) Well, we're working today, and today is a very special occasion, a very special day here on the rotation. Let's get started. Let's jump into the rotation. Is that you bored? On that fantastically rough start as we usually go. <laughs> Let's introduce ourselves. We're here at 1714 East <laughs> uh, 7th Avenue here in Ybor City, where it all began across down the street from uh, Victor Lakata's house, where he killed his parents with an axe just because of cameras. <laughs> I am your political director here of Suncoast Normandy Stein. I am also the and Master of Public Health, which is the reason why we started getting cannabis legal in the first place. Then I have here, up on my right-hand side, Chris Kano, our Master of Public Administration, the second people who were involved in the legalization of cannabis. And then below us, the Master of Business. Damn, <laughs> those millennials and the way they screw up this program, but let's discuss that a little bit. <laughs> that has generally been the evolution. We, we talk about it constantly. But it, let, let's put it, we have somebody in here right now. I said we were going to spend an entire month saying, what have you done since 71? <laughs> to try to figure out who the heck has been involved in making this thing go forward. Everybody talks about it, but a lot of folks would rather send the sidelines and point fingers. Let's find somebody who was actually on the sidelines, looking into the field and actually pointing the fingers at the right people. Ladies and gentlemen, our, the, the founder of, of uh, Normal, the national one and the current uh, senior council, Keith Stroop, JD. Welcome, Keith. Welcome on the show. Thank you. It's <laughs> nice to be with you all. So, actually, it, it was not necessarily the, the, although the Masters of Public Health actually had a lot to do with getting it going, like getting medical cannabis over in California, but it was actually the JDs who were actually involved in making this thing happen. Is that correct? Well, there were a lot of lawyers. There's no doubt about it. Uh, we we started forming a legal committee at Normal, I think, in the late '70s. And initially, we uh, solicited oops, sorry, solicited the support of lawyers for the purpose of uh, helping victims, people who've been arrested and called us for help. But we also began to recognize early on that these same lawyers who were politically active and and were opposed to prohibition. Uh, would be terrific lobbyists for us at the state and federal level. So many of the early uh, state normal coordinators were also active criminal defense lawyers. And you were a criminal defense lawyer. You were also a, a, a citizen, I, 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 was it a product lawyer as well? Like, yeah, like, I, Ralph Nader? 
I refer to myself as a public interest lawyer, but all that really means is that I've tried to use my law degree and my legal skill to impact public policy rather than simply to represent six or eight individual clients. I did for three, three and a half years at one point uh, actually practice criminal law, but I didn't find it as satisfying, to be honest. Um, I, the way I got involved in this was in order to stay out of the war in Vietnam, and remember, I'm of that generation that was just totally impacted by the war in Vietnam and the anti-Vietnam War movement. Um, when, when I was coming of age, if, if you were 18 and you were not a full-time college student, you were drafted, uh, if you were a male. Women back then were not drafted. Um, and so for most of us, uh, it was an enormous incentive to stay in, in school for longer and longer. But at some point, you know, you, you graduated college and then I graduated law school, but I still had two or three years of eligibility. I think you were eligible to be drafted until you were either 27 or 28 back then. Uh, so I was very, I was only a couple of weeks away from my report date. I had to report to go to Vietnam. Uh, when my local draft board, um, and I'd been, I had uh, had the help of some very creative lawyers, a group called the National Lawyers Guild. Uh, they were helping people like me who were then called draft avoiders or draft evaders, or draft resistors. They had all kinds of nasty names for us. But we were people who had seen friends of ours uh, go to Vietnam and get shipped home in body bags. And so we didn't know what that damn war was about. It didn't seem like it was worth dying for. Well, I was fortunate enough that my local draft board, when, when I graduated Georgetown Law School in 68, I had been offered a job by a new presidential commission called the National Commission on Product Safety. Now, it sounded important. It wasn't that important, but uh, <laughs> you know, it sounded like National Commission, et cetera. And uh, they hired uh, two lawyers from Harvard and two from Georgetown. And so we spent the time that I would have been in Vietnam working downtown DC, working around consumer advocate Ralph Nader. That whole commission had been created because of Nader's consumer advocacy. For those who may not remember, uh, Ralph had written a book called Unsafe at Any Speed about the U.S. Corvair being a dangerous automobile. And he'd come to Washington, and then he started having young law graduates come and join him every year. They were called Nader's Raiders. And he branched out and began to focus on unsafe products generally. He was a consumer advocate. Well, I had the privilege during the two years I worked for the National Commission on Product Safety of spending a lot of time with Ralph. We would go up to his office a couple of times a week. It was just up the street because the public had heard of Ralph Nader by then. So if they'd had a bad experience with a dangerous household product, they didn't know this new commission, but they did know Ralph Nader. So they would write him. At any event, I spent those two years uh, learning the sort of skills of a public interest lawyer uh, so that by the time uh, that commission was over, I was 27 or 28, I no longer was subject to the draft. And for the first time, uh, I actually had a choice. You know, what do I want to do with my life? Well, I had first smoked marijuana when I was a freshman at Georgetown in 1965. I obviously started smoking a little later than a lot of my colleagues. Uh, at any event, by that point, I'd been smoking for five or six years. And I thought, 
I, I was absolutely enamored by this concept of public interest law, but I was trying to figure out which, which issue should I work on. And it occurred to me, you know, the thing I really care about is uh, I like smoking weed. I, I think prohibition makes no sense at all. So I pulled together a few friends and we farm normal as a consumer advocacy lobby to end prohibition and legalize the responsible use of marijuana. I know that was a long answer, but that's, that's I, how I you know, ended up as a public interest lawyer. I got to ask you that that first experience you had smoking marijuana in Georgetown, what was that like? Like, I remember my first experience being so conflicted. I was like, holy, like going back and forth from being like, this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me to holy shit, I'm going to get addicted and I'm going to be a drug addict. <laughs> so, so what was that like? Did you, I mean, you, a lot of people have information of marijuana because of the things that you did. Like you, what information did you have? Yeah. Was Georgetown kind of like the foggy bottom of its time? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it, it was uh, surprising, but it was a weekend where I went on a ski trip to some little East coast ski. I forget which one we went to up in Pennsylvania. Um, and um, one of the, there were three of us. Uh, we, we had all been friends as undergraduates at the University of Illinois, and then we all ended up out in Washington, D.C. So we went on this weekend ski trip, and this one guy brought a couple of joints with him. So at the end of the first day, we went back to our hotel room where we were staying and played around with this joint. And to be honest, I'm not even sure we got high because we, we no, nobody was quite sure how to use it and whether we were holding it long enough or whatever. But I will say this, by the second day of skiing, we were kind of anxious to get off the slopes and try it again with that second joint. So it, it ended up being a very positive experience. And, and frankly, um, that was in 65. And so I've now been smoking marijuana, I think, 35, 55, 57 years, I think. So I guess that fear you mentioned earlier about becoming addicted, I apparently did. Still <laughs> the whole, the whole, uh, you know, I, I mentioned Hugh Hefner before we started the show. Like you, you've tried marijuana five years go by 1970. You start normal, right? Yeah. Um, your relationship with Playboy and how it started normal um, I, I really want to ask you about that because I mean, Playboy is going through uh, so, some issues with uh, being accused of being sexist and things like that, being kind of like cult-like towards the girls and things like that. I want, and, and and a lot of people look at it as a kind of a negative thing. They're rebranding now and whatnot, um, but. Uh, we wouldn't be here without them. <laughs> I, I was always you know what I mean? like, <laughs> we we wouldn't you know marijuana legalization would be a, a, a very small footnote without. Them. Yeah, and so, my big concern was always the sadistic uh, placement of the staples in the holdout. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I was like like most of young men of my generation. I think I got caught a couple of times with a copy of Playboy under my mattress, you know, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, it's a fantasy world, and I certainly didn't know much about it. But when I was starting normal, one of the people I had gone to for advice was former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark. Uh, Ramsey, for those who don't remember, his father had been a member of the U.S. Supreme Court. And when Lyndon Johnson wanted to appoint him as attorney general, his father had to step back from his position on the Supreme Court so there wouldn't be a conflict. 
but at any event, at some point, uh, Ramsey Clark, had, I think in 70 or 70, published a book called Crime in America uh, that I had read. And in it, he called for the legalization of marijuana. And I thought, man, this is amazing for a guy who a few months ago was a U.S. Attorney General. So I managed to go see him. I wanted to talk to him about what I was doing. I wanted uh, to see if he would help me. And I also, I think I was looking for a little reinforcement for somebody to tell me uh, what I was doing made sense, that it wasn't you know, self-destructive conduct. Because obviously I had other friends who were saying, Keith, you're throwing away your law degree. What the hell are you doing? So I got in to see Ramsey. And uh, so I told him what I was doing and, and said, what do you think? Should I be doing this or am I destroying my, my career? And he said, no, no. First off, he said, you should do it because it's important. It really needs to be done. We have hundreds of thousands of people being saddled with criminal records who are not criminals in any traditional sense. So he said, do it. And he said, also do it while you're young, because if you fall on your face, you can always pick yourself up and you know, start over again. If you if you wait until you're uh, you're raising a family and you're in midlife, you, you don't have all of those same free choices to make. It's not as easy to make later. So um, at any event, I, I was feeling pretty high about having that kind of encouragement. But in particular, he asked me if I had applied for funding from the Playboy Foundation. And I didn't even know there was such a thing as a Playboy Foundation at the time. And uh, I also said to him, look, I, I don't know if I should have this, uh, if I should even try to get funding from Playboy, because obviously by then there was already a fairly strong movement saying, you know, this Playboy is so incredibly sexist that you're sort of offending half the population. I and mean, frankly, if I were starting it today, uh, I, I would try not to have Playboy as my primary funder, just because I think there are politically, there are better ways to do that. But at the time, frankly, I didn't have any other choices. No one else had offered me any money. I hear you. Yeah. And Ramsey Clark, I said to him, well, uh, do you think it's going to hurt me if I take this money from Playboy? And um, he said, you know, um, he had had written several books by then and been a U.S. Attorney General and was a famous person and ended up, by the way, being an anti-war activist going to Hanoi with Jane Fonda and stuff. And and really played an outstanding role. He said whenever he went someplace, inevitably, the, the thing they always knew about him is they had read his Playboy interview. And he said, you know, in other words, even though he too wasn't totally comfortable with the association with something that was as, uh, potentially offensive to half of our population, but he also said it had an incredibly positive impact on his professional life. And so he said, I wouldn't worry about it. I would just jump into it with both feet. And I certainly did. I ended up, um, one of my dearest friends during the 70s, it was a woman who ended up being, she was Hugh Hefner's main assistant at the mansion. She had her own apartment in the Playboy Mansion in Chicago. And so what she would do is, um, Hef was at that point, uh, he had stopped drinking alcohol and. Uh, he would drink Pepsi-Cola, but uh, he would sometimes take amphetamines and stay up and work on the magazine for three days in a row and stuff. He was famous for that. But at some point, he would decide it's time to come down for a break. And when he did, he used to love to hide out with his friends and play. He had a pinball room that had 
60, 80 pinball machines, the best <laughs> in the world. And so my friend Bobby Arnstein, when she could tell that Hef was in a few hours going to want to take a break, she would call me up. I'd hop on a plane, fly out to Chicago. And when Hef decided it was time to play the pinball machines, Bobby and I would spend four or five hours playing pinball with Hef. But most importantly, it gave me an incredible opportunity to share with him what we were doing, the people we were helping, the people who've been busted and were in jail in, in Missouri and we were getting them out of jail, you know, that kind of thing. So um, it ended up being a very positive relationship that I had with Playboy all during the 70s. But, um, you know, it was obviously yeah. it was not, not without its challenges. There, there's, and, and I'm going to shut up after this, guys, but uh, the, there, there's a lot of... Uh, it is your job to ask questions. There, there's a lot of uh, uh, negativity that goes around that magazine, and, and I, can, I can understand why. But you look at the things, I mean, they champion quite a bit of civil rights, Oh yeah, they, yeah. They, they and this and marijuana legalization as well. I mean, I, we would not be here. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that magazine. That was something. That no, was you wouldn't. Made. You probably. Yeah, I never knew what Jimmy Carter had in his heart until that point in time. <laughs> you, you, you probably never would have heard of Normal, and and you certainly wouldn't have any reason to have me on your program if if you Hefner hadn't uh, shown some early interest in the organization. And by the way, it was interesting how they did it. Initially, they flew me out to meet with Hefner and the Foundation Board of Directors. And um, after that first meeting, they offered me a $5,000 grant. Well, you know, here I am, I'm out of law school. I'm thinking five grand, man, that's going to last about two months, you know, even with me as an employee. So I was a little uncertain as to whether I should take it. But of course, in the end, you, you take what funding is offered and you try to do something with it. Well, indeed. Within three, four months, they were giving us $100,000 a year in direct cash grants, as, wow. well as, as well as two full-page ads in the magazine, you know, normal ads. And back then, their circulation was something like $6 million, and each copy got passed around to four people. So you, you were reaching a potential audience of like 20 million people. So um, we had an and not just not just the money and the exposure, but whenever we would succeed in getting somebody out of jail or helping somebody who had been had their life fucked around because of the marijuana laws, a Playboy would feature it in their upfront news section. I forget what they called it, but again, you had a potential audience of 20 million people. This was before social media, so it was it, it, almost one of the only ways you could reach that kind of an audience, that size of an audience. Uh, so it ended up being a great relationship, and uh, of course, I'm I'm uh, eternally grateful to Hef and his daughter and all the rest of them that were big supporters for all those years. All right, so it was basically uh, a matter of social justice and getting folks uh, unincarcerated that was the impetus for normal, as opposed to getting it uh, out there as legal for for a health reason. Is that correct? That's correct. We we certainly worked on the medical marijuana movement, once that surfaced, uh, once California in 1996, I think, by uh, by initiative, passed the first medical marijuana initiative, um, we realized that, man, this is a, a, an incredible opportunity because once you had large numbers of people beginning to think about marijuana as a wonder drug, something that could help uh, MS patients and cancer patients, and you know, uh, then it can't be both 
an evil narcotic that leads to you know heroin addiction and be a miracle medicine. It just you you, you got to re-examine your original beliefs. And so the as medical marijuana began to be accepted in more and more states, obviously uh, our approval rating for full legalization, not just for medical use, began to edge up. When when we founded Normal in the late seventy, Gallup had just done their first poll asking how many Americans favored full legalization of marijuana. And it was only 12%. 88% of the country were opposed to what we were trying to do. Wow. Today, 70% by at least five different national surveys, including Gallup, by the way, uh, wow. at least 70% of the country now support full legalization, not just medical use. Medical use is I think it's 88% or something. It's hard to find somebody who doesn't support that any longer. So uh, we could tell, even though it took 50 years to get to where we are, we could tell along the way when we were making progress because the polling results showed that we continued to, every year, edge up a couple of three points. Uh, So in the end, I knew we were going to win it. I wasn't positive I was going to live long enough to see it. (laughs) But in the end, I, I got lucky and did. So that's awesome. You know, uh, Keith, we uh, we started this chapter, Carlos, myself, uh, we brought Gary on board as, as we got things together um, because we saw that, you know, in the fight for med- medical, um, it ended up where, you know, a lot of political personalities started to overshadow the fact that people were sick. Internet now. Oh. a little bit, but we're back. We're back. Okay, cool. All right, Carlos, Gary, I'm talking. Y'all hear me? Yeah, yeah. I hear you. Okay, yeah. cool. All right. So, you know, uh, Carlos, it, it, as we found this chapter, we, we thought, you know, hey, we need to rehighlight the fact that this does help sick people. That that the patients need to be upfront about this. Keith, um, when you know, at least he's smiling. <laughs> when, when, and when, in all of it, um, did 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 it, it it click for you that this 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 drug, if you will, can help so many people in so many ways uh, beyond just you know uh, the civil rights aspect of it? Well, um, I, I think you're right. By the way, that uh, a lot of people their interest in pot is primarily that they like to get high, and so do I. I mean, it's a it's a a version of getting high that's I think far more creative and far more uh, engaging than alcohol, for example, or, or any other alternative. Um, so I, I, I was always an enthusiast. I mean, once I was introduced to it, but again, I, I saw it from the standpoint of civil liberties for a long, long time. Um, I think it was probably when, as I say, I see the legalization movement in two or three phases in the initial early phase. Um, up, they got its real boost in 1972 when the National Commission on uh, Marijuana and Drug Abuse issued its report recommending not full legalization, but they did recommend man full decriminalization. That is that nobody should be arrested and treated like a criminal simply for smoking weed. Uh, they didn't have the courage to go, to go the full route and recommend legalization. And frankly, if they would have been, uh, they, they would have had a lot of pushback in 72. That was early. Uh, but once once they came out and recommended that, Normal went around the country to every state legislature and said, if we could identify a young state legislator willing to introduce a decrim bill, and we ended up with 
between 73 when Oregon was the first state to adopt a version of decriminalization to 78 when Nebraska became the last of those 11 states. We were on a real run. And in fact, we thought we were just four or five years away when we'd have marijuana decriminalized across the country. Uh, showed again that a lot of naivete on our part to some degree because the mood of the country sometimes goes in the other direction. We ended up by the late 70s having Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan and Just Say No and the parents' movements, and we didn't win a single statewide marijuana victory from 78 when Nebraska became the last of the first 11 to decriminalize until 96, 18 years when California adopted by initiative the medical use of marijuana. So the first important phase, I think, were those uh, 70s and 80s when we were still working on decriminalization. Then uh, uh, starting in 96, no doubt about it, the medical issue just took over and, and really redefined everything. And I think made it possible for us then starting in 2012 uh, to begin to get full legalization. I think it was 2012 or 2010. I think 2012 in Colorado and, and Washington became the first two states. Um, so it, it, it has been a long, steady struggle, but um, it's been satisfying because you could see the results as we were going along. We, we would usually win first on the left coast out in California and Oregon and uh, Arizona, places like that. Then we would start winning on the East Coast, and then finally in the Midwest, and then last but not least, the South. And that's really where we are now. We've made major strides in the Midwest. For you know, we've had Michigan and Illinois with full legalization, um, and uh, where we're not yet really strong is in the South. We're we've made a lot of headway with medical use, but we haven't made much headway with full recreational use yet in the South. But again. Uh, we're going to outlive the bastards if we need to. So if we need another four or five years, then that's what we'll do. We'll take our time and do it. Well, you know, I read um, uh, Par Armentano's um, op-ed last week, and he said that, you know, the prohibitionists have lost the hearts and minds of the public. So now they're trying to take the public out of the equation by, you know, superseding democracy, whether it's like in Florida, where the attorney general uh, worked to strike down, you know, the, the ballot measures that we had uh, that were supposed to be on this year's ballot, or, you know, how they've tried to reverse things in the Dakotas and such. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. It is, do you think that the that rings true that the prohibitionists have lost the heart and minds of the American public and now they're just holding on to whatever they can in order to, to you know, subvert democracy, if you will, in order to keep yeah. this bad policy in place? I, I do indeed. I think Paul pointed out some really valid issues. What they've done is they've resorted to trying to manipulate the procedures that have been in place for a long time. Now, keep in mind, only half the states offer a voter initiative as a way to change public policy. The other half, you have to do it either through the state legislature or by getting your state courts to declare the marijuana laws unconstitutional. And we haven't had much of the latter at all. So most of it has either been by voter initiative or by state legislature. And what they've begun to do, our opponents now, uh, they no longer claim they're in favor of treating marijuana smokers like criminals, but Anytime we have a, a marijuana legalization proposal that qualifies for the ballot, they attack it now 
take it to the state Supreme Court. So in some states, there's a rule you can only have one subject on any initiative. So we've had three or four of these in the last three or four years that have been struck down because they claim we had two subjects instead of one. Um, so in one of the states this year, I think it was Arkansas maybe, they had to run parallel initiatives. So one would uh, legalize and, and regulate the marijuana market and one would do the other part, but they were afraid if they put them together, it was gonna be considered two topics and therefore invalid. Uh, again, I agree with Paul, it, it's worth noting what they're doing so people don't get fooled by it. They, they like to say, oh no, they're not opposed to, uh, to, or they're not in favor of prohibition because they don't want to see people arrested. But in fact, what they're doing is spending their time and resources to keep prohibition in place wherever they can. But again, uh, they they are as aware as we are that they're on the losing end of, of this fight. And because as you point out, we have largely won the hearts and minds of the American public. You know, it, it's interesting to note uh, only roughly about 14% of the American people are current marijuana smokers. Roughly 40, 45% say they've smoked at some time in their life. They've tried a joint, whatever. But only about 14% are regular smokers. And I think in the early years, we felt that the only way we were going to win this battle and begin to get above that 12% support level is we had to turn more people on. Of course, we assumed that if they hadn't smoked, that somehow they were never going to be on our side. Well, the truth is, no, we've largely won their hearts and minds. We, we still only have roughly 14% who are regular or current smokers, but we have 70% support for full legalization. They have finally concluded which we thought they should have concluded a long time ago, but that prohibition causes far more harm uh, than the drug itself. And so you don't have to be pro-pot to be opposed to prohibition. And that's why we're doing so well now. Now, Keith, prohibition as a policy, you know, for most historians uh, and, and, you know, even, even political scientists see it as uh, something that came out of the Jim Crow era as a way to lock up blacks, Latinos, new immigrants, and working class people saddle them with criminal records. Do you still see that as the motivations in, in the modern era? I mean, I, I read that analysis that came out of New Jersey and it seemed like, you know, uh, more upper middle class white towns are not allowing dispensaries, you know, in their state. And, and, and in a state like New Jersey, you know, a Northern state, it just, it, it, there's some indicators there as a political scientist. It's like, you know, it seems like the, the roots of prohibition haven't gone away in a lot of places in this country. Well, I think there's no doubt that uh, prohibition itself was a racist policy from the start, only put in place because at the time, 1937, when the Federal Act was first passed, but although a number of states already had anti-marijuana laws by then, I think California may have been the first in, in uh, 1904 or something like that. Uh, but um, where was I? I'm sorry, I got, I got off on a tangent there. Um, the, the first laws in 1904. Sorry, say again. The unified states laws that were occurring through 1904 to 1937. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, the point that I wanted to reconnect with was the one you were making, is that I don't think most of our opponents today uh, are intentionally racist, and I don't think they intentionally support prohibition because they hate black people or brown people. But we never fully get away from that past. And you can look, it's not just marijuana laws, you can look at any criminal justice subcategory 
And what you will see was while blacks and browns and whites commit crime at almost the same level, for example, if you want to define marijuana smoking as a crime, uh, literally it's between 14 and 15% whether you're white, brown, or black. But the percentage of people who are arrested, it's like double and triple for blacks and browns as it is to whites. So uh, there certainly is still a legacy of racism. Uh, again, I, I honestly don't think most of it's intentional. I think it's that kind of institutional racism that exactly. once it starts, it's awfully hard to turn that ship around. Uh, if we looked as hard uh, for marijuana smokers in the white community as we do in the black and brown communities, we'd find them. And by the way, one point here, New York deserves special credit. Uh, of all the states that have passed legalization, theirs did for the first time said, Anywhere it's legal to smoke tobacco in New York State, it is now legal to smoke marijuana, which means that yeah. even if you live in a, an apartment complex where they don't allow smoking of any kind, it used to be, if you were a poor person who lived in that kind of housing, or at least a poorer person, um, you didn't have any place to smoke legally. You had, you had to kind of hide it and go outside and hide behind a building or whatever the hell. Uh, what New Yorkers finally realized is, wait a minute. In New York, you can't stand in front of a commercial business and smoke tobacco, but it's perfectly legal to walk down a neighborhood street and smoke tobacco. So why the hell shouldn't it be marijuana? And it is now in New York. And I would bet that that will become one of those provisions that is very quickly mimicked, picked up by a, a whole lot of other states. Now, just so. even though the, the coal memo was pretty much almost gone away, when it first came out, a lot of st states took to heart that they had to have a quote-unquote ro robust regulation system in place in order not to be uh, offending the, the federal law and, our, and, and stop the feds from coming in. But I, I didn't see the feds actually coming in even if they uh, had tried to uh, create less robust uh, regulation systems in the states. No, I, I agree. It was a kind of a surprising development at some point where the feds elected to that they could live with allowing the states to do their own experimentation. Now, I think it was smart of them because instead of, of really upping the, the intensity of the war on marijuana smokers, uh, they allowed it to kind of resolve itself to a large degree and said to the states, Again, you know, when we ended alcohol prohibition, none of us are old enough, fortunately, to remember that yet, but um, I'm close. Uh, the federal government didn't dictate to the states that all of a sudden they had to re-legalize alcohol. No, they just removed all the federal anti-alcohol provisions and said, you're free to do what you want. If you want to maintain alcohol prohibition, you're free to do that. If you want to experiment with legalization, you're free to do that. And there are still counties in Kentucky and Tennessee and Oklahoma, a number of states that are called dry counties because they have no uh, liquor stores. They, they just never actually went back and legalized it on the county level. Uh, so I think that's exactly what you're going to see with, with marijuana. I don't know of anyone who really thinks that what we need is to have Congress dictate uh, what kind of legalization the whole country has to have and what the tax rate is and all this. No, no, no. I feel much more comfortable having the states act as uh, laboratories for social justice. Now, one thing that the state, that the, the federal government can do, of course, is to deschedule it, deschedule cannabis, take it off the damn CSA. Now, when, correct me if I'm wrong, but when the CSA was originally written, uh, the, the Attorney General came out and said 
it would have to be up to the attorney general to decide whether or not it, it would be scheduled or not and, and left it in, in, in the DOJ's pocket. And yet that has never been approached in that direction. Did you, did, did uh, Mr. Ramsey ever consider that? Um, well, uh, when, when uh, he was attorney general, I doubt it because I think that was before he had uh, had his own conversion on, on marijuana policy, or at least on a strong enough level that he was willing to come out publicly. But uh, of course, you're absolutely right. The, there are three different bills, I think, pending right now in Congress, each of which would totally deschedule marijuana. We used to talk about rescheduling it to a lower schedule. Well, the, the truth is there's, there's no part of the Controlled Substances Act where marijuana fits in. Alcohol is not on the Controlled Substances Act, tobacco is not on it, and neither should marijuana. So instead of lowering it to a lower schedule, which would at least help medical users, but that's not enough. So all of our proposals now in Congress say take it totally off the Controlled Substances Act so the federal government is not in the in the way of any state that wants to be a little creative and experiment with their own system of legalization. And I'm almost certain that's what will happen. Probably within two to three years, I think we should be able to get that passed. Well, we had a number of uh, friends of the show that are also kind of more Monday morning quarterbacks that, that have asked us, you know, 50 years of normal, and yet we still haven't got deschedulization de 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 yet. What has normal done sitting on their hands and, and just taking money for the last 50 years. So, uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I recognize uh, the, the, they certainly, uh, any of us that uh, choose to do public policy work uh, have to be willing to take the heat. If somebody thinks we're not doing a good job or we're not spending the money in a way that makes sense, they have a right to, to criticize them. Uh, criticize us, it's fair game in the political realm. Now, I would say uh, that, uh, the progress has almost entirely been on the state level. There, there has been gradually more and more progress in Congress, so we're getting close to the point where we can now, I think, pass a version of, of federal legalization within two or three years. But uh, up to this point, we simply didn't have the, the votes in Congress to do it. But uh, I think most social change in this country tends to occur on the state level Generally, and certainly with marijuana policy, it's been almost entirely that. Realize we now have, I think, 33 states that have a meaningful version of medical marijuana. There's even more. It's like 38 states have some, but some of them, they don't allow you to smoke flour. They, you know, some of them are bullshit. Uh, but at least 33 are serious laws that help a lot of seriously ill patients. And we have 19 states in the District of Columbia that are fully legalized adult use. And we're probably going to add two or three more states to that over the next six months. So um, I realize it's never as, change is never as quick as any of us would like. But I think there's an incredible amount of progress that's been made over the last 30, 40 years. If you look at it from the state level and where we were before the marijuana commission came out in 72. Oh, okay. I, I was, I'm going to ask was, a question. I was going to interrupt you. <laughs> so, uh, Keith, uh, can, the, uh, the way this show works first off is, uh, Chris and Gary are the political type guys and I'm kind of like more just like the chill Joe, Joe Schmo guy. Um, <laughs> 
but so like you're the official user this entire time right they're talking to you about what's going on politically and i'm sitting here and i just like i want to talk about hunter thompson i want to talk about fucking tommy chong i want to talk about all these different celebrities and like kano was talking about and i was really thinking about this when kano was talking about uh uh the prohibitionists uh losing the hearts and minds of americans right and it's really because they're not fucking cool there is some of that to it but that but i think it, it mostly we, we have finally won their hearts and minds primarily because um we outlived our opponents uh, you, you know the people who were my generation primarily who were the real reefer maniacs their whole adult life, they were told by the government that you smoke a joint, you're going to be a heroin addict. I mean, it was a terrible message. It was repeated routinely day in and day out for all those years. So for most of my generation, uh, they just were not able to let go of that. And we almost had to wait until a fair, fair number of us had retired or died or stepped aside. But for the younger generations, even one generation younger, uh, that they just never believed that shit. They knew all along that, that it was propaganda. I've always felt that cannabis has like two things going for it. And honestly, normal as an organization has the same thing going for it. First off, on the side of truth, this is just something that is good for people. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and second, right. I, I mean, it's fucking awesome. It's cool. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, and, and, and there's a reason why. You know, uh, you you were you were talking to us uh, when we were waiting for Gary to start the show. Yeah, that we, we were, you were, you, were, you, you missed an awesome story, man, about how he met Hunter S. Thompson. And I was just wondering if you had some cool, you know, story, it, be it that one or some other celebrity that you you ended up smoking weed with that you just could share with us right now. Yeah, because Hunter S. Thompson is yeah. why I got the journalism. <laughs> I, I, I was, that was Gonzo from day one. Well, well Keith, I, I got to say, man, I, I've actually been a delegate to a DNC convention and, and had the opportunity to, you know, smoke some, some with my friends. But you telling us that story, the 1972 presidential convention, Democratic convention in Miami. I mean, that sounds like a party just to just those throw those those words out there. But then you get to meet Hunter S. Thompson. I mean, tell us that story a little bit in Detroit. Well, and, and uh, I also first met Tom Prasad, who was at that time a marijuana smuggler, but two years later founded High Times Magazine, and they've been big supporters of ours over the years. Uh, but uh, with Hunter, it was the first night of the convention. Uh, and what they had done in, in Miami is in 1968, when the Democratic Convention had been held in Chicago, they had riots and um, serious riots and people got their heads busted and you ended up having the trial of the Chicago Nine and then the Chicago Eight. And it was a you know a really radical situation that probably no one gained a lot from. So by 72, the Democrats had figured out that of dissidents from around the country who were gonna to come to their convention that they ought to give us our own space because if they try not to, we're, we're gonna interrupt the convention. So they had set aside what they called the People's Park in Miami. It was just a block or two from the, uh, I think from the convention center where the convention itself was going on. But it was a block or two with a lot of police there to make sure that we couldn't cause any trouble, but was interesting. 
whatever somebody wanted to do in the park itself, assuming it was nonviolent, uh, they didn't give a shit. And so, for example, Tom Fursad, the guy who I, I mentioned two years later would uh, found High Times Magazine, uh, Tom had something called the People's Pot Tree, where if you went to the park and, and suggested to anybody that you wanted to buy some marijuana, they would point you over to the corner of the park where Fursad was sitting up in a tree and he had a string with a, a clip on it and he would lower that. You'd give him 20 bucks or 40 bucks. I don't know what it was now. And he'd raise it up and then he would lower a, a quarter of an ounce or a half an ounce of marijuana, <laughs> whatever it was. And it was the people's pot tree and nobody got busted, you know, for doing it. So it was just, it, it demonstrates how much give the Democratic Party was willing to have just to keep us away from the convention itself. So the first night of the convention, I had managed to get a pass where I was allowed to sit in the bleachers, the visitors. I obviously wasn't a delegate, but I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I smelled marijuana and uh, it was pretty clearly marijuana and it was coming from underneath my seat. Uh, so I sort of looked down, there were bleachers that were somewhat like you used to see at high school gym games and stuff, that the bleacher kind of folded in and folded out. And I looked down there and I saw this gangling guy uh, who I recognized from seeing his photos uh, in Rolling Stone. He had recently, before that, he had published in serial form uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Wow. Uh, it was one of, one of his first big books. So in any event, I thought, shit, I can't pass up this opportunity. So I, I worked my way down the bleachers and walked up to him and stuck my hand out and introduced myself. I said, I'm Keith Strapa. I just founded a marijuana legalization group called Normal. I wanted to say hello to you. And he's huffing and puffing. He hands me the joint. And of course, I took it. We smoked the joint and uh, formed a friendship that lasted until the time of his death, about, I, I think about 15 years ago or so. He was a major player in Normal during the early years, came to all of our conventions, uh, usually spoke, always entertained the group up in his room during the off hours. Um, so I, I think from my standpoint, and I look back over all the interesting people we've had the pleasure to work with over these years, uh, Hunter was the most interesting from my standpoint. He was just such a colorful character, uh, dynamite, beautiful, creative writer, uh, but a, a kind of a crazy son of a bitch, you know? And so when you were with him, you, you had to be a little careful. I, I'd go out almost every year. I'd go out and spend a couple of nights at Hunter's place. It's called Al Farm outside of Aspen. And, uh, you know, usually... I'd stay out there till two or three in the morning and we'd be smoking grass and snorting cocaine and drinking whiskey. And uh, and then I'd drive back home to my hotel and crash out. And Hunter would get up and go to work. I mean, that was his preparation before he was going to do his writing. He was, uh, I don't think he ever did any serious writing when he wasn't just wrecked up to his, you know, his eyelids. <laughs> You know, it's funny you say that, Keith, because it seems like in a lot of ways that is the magic formula uh, for success in this social justice movement, you know, around uh, cannabis prohibition. You got to have the politically minded and, and social justice minded, civil rights minded folks. And then you need a few crazy son of a bitches who just don't care uh, to, to make to make it all work and keep things fun. And I think that's part of the dynamic we have, you know, with our chapter, Doral, between me, Carlos, Gary and our other board members. But but uh, it's interesting that 
you say that because yeah, it, it, it can't always be suits and, and ties all the time. Sometimes you you got to remember why you're doing this and let your hair down. Well, and and also you remember for all of those years, for decades, uh, it was so scary to smoke marijuana that whenever you'd go to some event, you'd end up outside in a back alley, standing in a circle with mostly total strangers and passing this joint where in essence, if any one of those people in that circle chose to rat you out, you could all be arrested and go to jail. So what, what the government didn't realize, they were creating a brotherhood or sisterhood. I mean, we, we all felt a connection with those people we were taking that legal risk along with. Now, I'm glad that I don't generally have to take that legal risk. Marijuana has now been legal to possess up to an ounce in Virginia. You can grow up to four plants. We're not, we don't have full legalization, but we've come a long way. So I enjoy not having the paranoia of worrying about, am I going to get busted? But I also recognize that we might never have formed the nationwide network of stoners if it wouldn't have been for the government forcing us into those little circles in the back alley. <laughs> that is such a great way to put it, man, because I I got to say, that's one of the things that I really like about marijuana use. It's the whole ritual of breaking it up. Yeah. I yeah. like cleaning it. Uh, I like rolling it by hand. You know, yeah. I like, this is and, why I miss double albums. And, and yeah. <laughs> it, it does. You form a brotherhood, uh, yeah. you know. And and this rotation's like my brotherhood. I love you guys. <laughs> I have to ask you. Um, <clears throat> no, I'm, I'm, I, I, okay. Yeah, Ralph Mater. Did Ralph Mater smoke? Because it, it would make it would answer. <laughs> no, like no. By the way, interesting. Of all the people I mentioned, Ralph had enormous influence on my choice to pursue public interest law. No doubt. But for him, I didn't even know what the hell a term meant. But he was such a geek, he had such a geek, still alive, that he's never smoked in his life. Now, I will tell you that the first two or three groups of Nader's Raiders, when they came to town, they spent their weekends at my house. I had a house at 23rd and M, and they were real stoners. So uh, I, I felt always felt close to the Nader community because of that. But Ralph himself is just a total nerd. He wouldn't know what to do with the joint. <laughs> And it would probably scare him to death if he got high. I don't know. That's hilarious. You know, go ahead. Oh, well, Keith, you know, part of what we're trying to get to, you know, you mentioned about the legalization for, you know, responsible use. And I think the biggest thing that's missing for me and a lot of other folks who are professionals is worker protections. I mean, yeah. you know, only only uh, six states have worker protections. California last week passed a worker protection law that's sitting on the governor's desk right now. So By the way, it just got signed. Oh, fantastic. That's fantastic oh, news. Breaking news. Yeah, sure do. I got to get Gavin Newsom on it. Yeah, yeah, so so that that is an awesome uh, victory on Labor Day for for you know workers' rights and and so that's really I think the next step in, in, in that we need to see uh, in regards to public policy changes. You know, we've changed the policy to where you won't lose your freedom for it, but people can still lose their livelihoods for it, and that's well, a, a major concern. There are a couple of other areas, but you're right. Job discrimination is one of the most important because even in most states that have fully legalized marijuana, if a private company wants to maintain what they love to call a drug-free workplace. It's not. You can go out and drink six beers over lunch and come back to work. But in any event, 
they they are allowed to do that. And in most of those states, they can still fire an employee without any evidence that the employer came to work in an impaired condition. And that's bullshit. Well, as you pointed out, California just passed a law that ended that in California. I think there are four or five other states that have also done it. But there are a couple of other areas that are similar. One is DUID, as you know, because of drug testing, they don't test for impairment. They test for the presence of THC. Well, THC is fat soluble. It stays in your system for days or even weeks after you've last smoked, even though you, you wouldn't be impaired longer than 45 minutes or an hour after you smoked. But six weeks later, if you're a longtime smoker like me, you could still test positive. So what we need to do is to switch to a uh, tests that measure impairment, not the presence of THC. There are a few states that are beginning to move in that direction now. But there are still, I don't know, I think eight or 10 states that have what are called per se uh, DUID laws, which says if you have any THC in your system, a couple of them say if you have more than two milligrams, they don't have to show, is that me or you? <laughs> they don't have to show impairment. Now, uh, the other area, which is really a heartbreaker, has to do with child custody. If you're parents of a young child and you have a nosy neighbor who thinks she smells marijuana and cho chooses to report it to the child welfare agency, uh, and every state, of course, has one, uh, they will do two things. They automatically come out and do a surprise inspection. In other words, they start with the presumption that if you're a marijuana smoker, you probably have a filthy home that's not a safe environment to raise children in. Now, how's that for prejudice and bullshit? Secondly, they insist on you taking and paying for both a drug education course, and those are not much better than they were in the 1950s, and a, a parenting course. Again, assuming that because you or your husband elects to smoke marijuana somehow, uh, that suggests you're, you, you don't understand basic parenting rights and concerns. So we've got a lot of work to do. Our goal at Normal is we think marijuana smokers should be treated fairly in all aspects of their lives, and they're not yet. We're making enormous progress, but I assure you we've got plenty of work to do. Now, <clears throat> one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today is because we're into the last three months before the, the, the uh, general election for the midterms. And we always stress the fact that legislation really does depend on who the legislators are. And it's politics that got us into this prohibition. And it seems like politics may be the only way out of this prohibition. And so we, we need to be concerned as to what is happening in, in Washington, D.C. and all the various states. And to make certain that we put the people in that we feel are, are going to do that. Uh, I had one person who had asked me to ask you. Uh, why don't we applaud all the great things that Trump did for cannabis? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> is that a serious question? It's a serious question because he is under the belief, uh, according to his talking points, that because of the fact that the Farm Act uh, passed in 2018, we must applaud uh, Trump for opening up the entire market for everybody. And I figure I'll let you go ahead and answer that question. Well, all, all the Farm Act did was legalize THC that comes from industrial hemp and is less than 0.03 THC. Well, let me tell you, you're not going to get high on that. So you may think that was a great favor that Trump did. Uh, <laughs> I would tell you, I doubt if he had much to do with it at all personally, and I think it had no impact at all. Um, it, it's a, irrelevant. Nobody who smokes marijuana because they enjoy getting high is going to smoke that shit. 
you know, it, it, it's stuff that college kids might smoke or something. I, uh, I think. So, uh, so, I mean, I, the idea that somebody would even have the, the balls to ask a question, why don't I, we give Trump credit for the, anything? The Trump should be, I, locked, <laughs> should be locked up, not given credit. <laughs> I, I think the question that Gary was really asking uh, we get a lot of uh, we we've spent uh, 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 the past two months right uh, working hard and especially Gary over here working very hard to get as many uh, people that are are running for office in Florida on this show to talk about marijuana legalization and their stance on marijuana legalization and in doing so uh, some of the criticisms that we've received is that we've only had Democrats on the show. <laughs> well, that's—they're uh, the only people that give a damn, you know. I, mean, I, I think the question Gary's really trying to ask you, as somebody who's spent so long working on cannabis legalization, how do you combat the cognitive dissonance <laughs> that uh, conservatives, more specific, I, I, I would say Republicans? Uh, <laughs> uh, how would you, how do you combat the cognitive dissonance? I mean, I, there are people it, that say that we're anti-DeSantis and we're anti-weed because we're anti-DeSantis, right? And then at the very si same time, the DeSantis administration like limits their milligram dosage and like, how how can we combat this cognitive dissonance? These are people think that these people are on their side and they're going to destroy legalization. In yeah, this they put medical caps on it based on uh, their own opinion. Yeah, I, I know. I think I, that's an idiot move, by the way. Paul Armentano published something on that recently, too. Uh, capping the, the strength of medical marijuana or adult use marijuana makes no sense at all. I mean, anybody who understands alcohol. If you drink whiskey instead of beer, you don't drink as much. You don't have to have the government capping it. You, the first time you try to drink the same amount of hard liquor, you're going to be, get so sick that that's the last time you're going to try it. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any reason for us to fall for those kinds of false flags. And I think that's sort of what that is. That's an attempt to say we're doing something to help you when you're not at all. All you're really doing is putting government interference in between a patient and a doctor or a, 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 an adult uh, who wants here, to use marijuana. Here's the thing, Keith. These people vote. <laughs> These people have an influence on how this ends up in the long run. And they're, they're, they're putting people in power that are against them completely thinking in the other direction thinking this person is going to legalize marijuana i'll show you normal people <laughs> well you know I'd, I'd be delighted if they surprise us and one of those people actually does something to help the legalization movement i don't expect we'll see it but i'll certainly be willing to give them kudos if they do yeah. Uh, I, I'm not someone who thinks that the Democrats are always right and the Republicans are always wrong. It's just that after the last five years and this this experience we all had with Trump trying to steal the election, uh, I, I'm not sure the Republican Party any longer deserves to be treated with respect. Uh, I mean, they are literally still trying to overturn the results of a valid election and, try, and trying to... Um, avoid a peaceful tra a transition of power. We never thought we would see that, or I didn't think I'd ever see that in this country. So uh, 
we're going to have setbacks. There are going to be some places like DeSantis in Florida, where assuming he gets reelected, uh, we're probably not going to make much progress in Florida while he's still governor. But give us a couple more years and you'll see there'll be a blowback on that. Florida at some point is going to look around and realize they got states all around them that are making money by taxing and legalizing adult use of marijuana. So why again are we not doing it in Florida? Uh, because DeSantis, uh, you know, whatever the hell his excuse is. So uh, his excuse is this, it smells bad. That's yeah. his <laughs> excuse. <laughs> well, progress is seldom uh, totally linear. You know, when you're looking at social change, you'll make some progress for a while and then you'll get knocked back a little, but then you'll come back again. So I think that's the phase we're in, but thank God we're in, we're dealing with the nuances now in most cases. There's still, keep in mind, there's still about half the states where you can still be arrested for a joint. So in those states, we're still dealing with the basic issue. Should we treat responsible marijuana smokers as criminals? And obviously the answer is of course not, but there's still, 18 and 20 states who do. So we've got work to do there. But mostly the public policy debate has moved beyond that crude test of do you want to arrest somebody? And we're dealing with the the nuances of how do you how you deal with child custody? How, how do you deal with job discrimination? How do you deal with fair drug testing? So I don't want people driving while they're impaired on marijuana or anything else. But I certainly don't want them to be denied their driving privileges simply because they have THC in their system. So uh, there are answers to the, you know, these are challenges, but there are answers to them uh, and we'll get there. I know for some, for some people you have to tell them, you know, don't hotbox in front of the DMV. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I would agree. There are some things, and, and we used to be a little that way too. I think in the early years, we had to fight so hard for attention that sometimes we we set ourselves back. We we did things which didn't really help the cause. One time in the early years at a conference, uh, a, a yippie, uh, Aaron Kay, his name is from New York, who's famous as a pie man. He used to always throw cream pies in the face of politicians. Yeah. So he showed up at one of our conferences and wanted to know, is there somebody, you know, that he should pie? And, I don't know. To me at the time, it sounded like kind of a fun little thing to have. So we had this this guy who was a, a, a real conservative Republican. He worked on some committee that was obscure as hell, totally anti-drug, but he'd agreed to serve on the panel. So, you know, we'd have him on to make it look like we were fair, fair-handed. But then the, the Aaron comes to me and he says, Keith, could you loan me $8 to buy the pie? Now, at this point, surely I should have recognized it's probably time for me to bow out of this exercise, but I didn't. I gave him the $8. He got the pie, threw it in Nellis's face, and I almost got fired over at the time. And I, you know, when I look back on it, I can understand why my board of directors would say, Keith, what, what the fuck were you up to there? <laughs> but again, in the early years, the challenge was to get someone to notice you and pay attention. So in in trying to do that, we sometimes went a little bit out of bounds. So what's our biggest challenge today? Yeah, and what can, what can uh, people who want to be part of normal or are considering being part of normal, which are a lot of people out here watching us today, uh, what can they do to further, further the movement and solve the problems we have today? 
Well, for one thing, uh, without spending any money at all, if they'll simply sign up on the normal website for our legislative directory, I forget what exactly we call it, but it's on the front page. What it'll do is you enter your zip code and it will tell you uh, who everybody who's running for Congress or Senate from your state and your district. And it also includes your state level representatives. So it makes it simple as hell. You fill out one little sample uh, email and click a button and it goes to every one of your elected officials. So, I mean, I know that sounds like a small measure, but it's not. I mean, if, you know, if a million people in Florida click that box between now and the, and the midterm elections, it'll make a hell of a difference. So I think mainly the difference you can make is uh, become part of the active community, but that doesn't mean you have to quit your job and, and go go pick it down, you know, by the state legislature. Uh, no, no, there are all kinds of ways to use uh, media uh, sites like Normals. There are lots of other good groups around that do similar work. But make sure your elected representatives know that you're a mainstream, middle-class, hardworking person, and you, you want to end marijuana prohibition. You know, we're still having to overcome some negative stereotypes. There are still some people out there that think if you're if you're rooting to end marijuana prohibition, that you're just a stoner who wants to get high and sleep on the sofa all day or something. So we need to continue to redo that stereotype so they see that most marijuana smokers are good, hardworking, mainstream Americans. Keith, I'm glad you said that because uh, coming out of the International Journal of Neuropsychopharmacology uh, was a, a controlled uh, data um, study that showed that cannabis consumption is not linked to changes in motivation. So yeah. the so-called a motivational syndrome, the lazy stoner, uh, is just not true. It's a stereotype that has no basis in science. I saw that study not long ago, and by the way, you're right, during the early years, I think maybe the most effective argument our opponents used were, it's going to turn you into a, a, a worthless, worthless stoner, you're never going to get off the sofa. And obviously, uh, it was hard for us to counter that because we didn't have any state where they had legalized it, so we could say, look, it's working fine. Now we have the advantage of these 19 states in the District of Columbia. Another real big concern was <clears throat> you may have a spike in adolescent marijuana smoking. You know, if it's more available for adults somehow, there's going to be a spike in kids. Well, the truth is there's been a, a little decrease in uh, underage kids smoking marijuana since we began to legalize. Nobody knows for sure, I think, why that is. I, I kind of assume the kids have always rejected whatever their parents were into. And I think the fact that their parents are probably smoking weed right now means that they're just not as enticed by it. And that's fine, because I, mean, I think the, the one argument that does make sense is that because your brain apparently isn't totally formed until you're 23 or 24 years old, then it makes sense to be cautious about what you put in your mind, or what you put in your body when you're at that age group. Now, the truth is, one out of two kids, by the time they graduate high school, have experimented with marijuana. The vast majority go right on the college, do perfectly fine. So there's no real suggestion from the evidence that smoking marijuana when you're underage is necessarily going to harm you in the long run. But I still think it makes sense for us to say, hey, if you want to 
If you want to take the most healthiest course you can take, give it a couple of years before you start smoking. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you said that because the Community Mental Health Journal, um, you know, put out a study that Cornell University had, and it's it showed that you know medical cannabis access is not associated with increases in use by young people, and like you said, it actually shows the opposite, the inverse, where it goes down. Um, and they were looking at folks who have uh, cannabis use disorder. And that's something I wanted to talk about for a second, because the fact that the DSM, the psycho, you know, the dictionary for psychology in this country still has cannabis use disorder as a legitimate mental illness is infuriating. How is that even still scientifically valid? Well, I, th I think what it does, of course, is it undermines the reputation of groups like that. Uh, most of us recognize that cannabis use disorder, if you're an anti-marijuana zealot, means you smoked a joint once. You know, I mean, that's a cannabis use disorder. Or if you're a regular smoker and you smoke three or four nights a week, well, that must be cannabis use disorder. The reality is, uh, as I say, I've been smoking 57 years now. I'm not aware of any negative impact for my regular use of marijuana for over over five decades. So no, uh, no psychosis, right? That's what? And, and there was no psychosis involved. <laughs> no. Well, uh, not that I'm aware of. There may I may have some of my colleagues that would question that, but at least I'm not aware of it. In fact, with me, I, I first began to experience seizures when I was 67 years old, which is late in life to begin having seizures. And at the time, I called Dr. Lester Grinspoon at Harvard, who's no longer with us, but was intellectually the giant of our movement. Uh, wrote several books. Marijuana Reconsidered is, is the most famous, the best book ever written about ending prohibition. And I said, Lester, what's going on? I'm, I've begun to have seizures and uh, I'm you know, 67 years old. What the hell's going on? He said, Keith, I have a feeling uh, that but for the fact you've been taking the best anti-seizure medication in the world for several decades, you would have been having seizures earlier. <laughs> and he's probably right. I don't know. I mean, my seizures are under control now. I take pharmaceutical drugs as well as I smoke every evening. But I haven't had a seizure in years now. So We have got to get you back on another time because we've got so many more things we wanted to, to breach as far as topics of discussion. But we've come to the end of this rotation. I'm probably uh, sober enough to drive home. And that means that, 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 that we have to, to end with our commercial here, of course, and that is that if you want to join Suncoast Normal and be part of the movement on the local level, of course, we already had Charlie Crist and Nikki Fried on the show. We walked them through that, and we, we have Charlie Rick Crist in our pocket. We're going to go ahead and educate the legislator as much as we can to try to get him in the office, but we can't do it without your support. And, yep. and that includes everything, including trying to push all the bills we have planned for this session, including employee protection, medical protection, reciprocity, which we still don't have here in Florida, expansion of qualifying conditions, and of course, home grow, which is kind of a big topic. And we can't seem to get on the ballot for whatever reason, but we'll see what happens on that. But you can go to suncoastnormal.org and join the local chapter. And of you course, you get, you get the genuine national or, or normal card as well as this fantastic gold pin you can put on your lapel and tell everybody about it in the grocery store line about how you support the use of cannabis and why they should be nice to you all all use uh, i mean all change occurs on the local level so absolutely if you want to know how you can honestly have a difference find the, the closest normal organization to you and if you're listening on this program it's probably suncoast normal 
um, and offer to help. I mean, it's not going to take a big chunk out of your life, but it may make a real difference in the lives of tens of thousands of Floridians if you do it. And with that, bye, everybody. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah. This has been The Rotation, and you have been a part of it. You can be a bigger part of it by joining Suncoast Normal. Suncoast Normal is an organization that can help you make the change that we all need. Go to the Suncoast Normal website and become a member, because that is how you become part of the change. You can find The Rotation podcast on both SoundCloud and iTunes. But you can always join us in the rotation at suncoastnormal.org. At that very website, you can join the cannabis movement by becoming a member of Suncoast Normal, gain access to cannabis events, cannabis info, Normal's legal network, and even a free membership to National, all by joining Suncoast Normal. That website, again, is suncoastnorml.org. You can also find us on social media at Suncoast Normal. Uh, find us on both Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And thank you, Gary. And good night. Good night. <laughs>